0: chapter 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is the word of the Lord. One of the you Christian pastors to remain in Baghdad is uh, Andrew White, the vicar of St. George's Cathedral. He wrote a book in 2013 called Father Forgive. He said, the Apostle John, recording the words of Jesus in his gospel, wrote, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering service to God. And this is what we've witnessed in our time but he continues to stay he continues to have a ministry of reconciliation and hope among uh, his neighbors and the handful of Christians that remain in Baghdad and and uh, later he said here our people have nothing we have lost everything yet the presence of Jesus is so real we talk about love all the time and in love we see the beginning of reconciliation the sermon on the mount was written to Christians in, in somewhat of a similar uh, place uh, to communities experiencing a, a degree of persecution in the first century. And one of the things we noticed last week, that the Beatitudes begins with this uh, uh, challenge to expect to be persecuted by 511, blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it's one of the things that believers are to expect when they sign up for the kingdom of God. Now, uh, the church in America, of course, is not a persecuted church in the way that the church in Baghdad is. But one of the things that we've talked about a couple of times is that uh, the American church is losing uh, its home court advantage. Uh, there, There is a sense that the culture is increasingly growing cooler towards uh, the church. And uh, and that means that some of the old strategies that we've used to serve the culture and witness to the culture may need to change. I thought of that this week when I read a paragraph from a church planting book. Uh, The writer says, Recently I received a big surprise while sitting in a meeting of denominational leaders discussing church planting. A prominent leader in the room announced... We will spend no more money on church planting. The failure rate is 90%. Everyone in the room agreed. Can it be any clearer? The landscape has changed for church planting. For years, denominational groups have used church planting to expand their reach into new neighborhoods. Churches would send small groups of people into a locale, set up a worship service, and provide a list of support services for families. They would announce their arrival with some advertising and then wait for people to gather at a public launch service. A new church would be born. But North America, once a ready market for Christians eager for these new churches, has become a mission field. There are now fewer and fewer Christians even remotely interested in another local franchise of a church. What used to work in starting new churches now fails. So we're not in Baghdad Um, but we're not in Kansas anymore either. And and so the question of how do you witness to a culture that's increasingly uh, uh, becoming cool to the gospel uh, is an important one. Uh, And Jesus begins to answer that question in tonight's text. He says, you should be the salt of the earth. Hopefully you notice that that's not what he said. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, His strategy begins, his first order of mission begins by reminding them of who they are. And telling them to be who they already are, their salt. This summer, and I've I've told you I've conducted a little experiment, um, and on Wednesday mornings I've uh, gone down after some practice and gone to the UT Garden, and normally in my devotional life I read a scripture and I pray about it in my journal, but on Wednesdays this summer I've decided not to do that and to just walk for a half hour in the garden and let the garden speak, let God speak to me as I watch the garden. I'm not a very observant person, Uh, I I don't pay a lot of attention to things, and if you see my yard you'd you'd notice that. that I'm not a nature-y kind of guy, but this summer that's what I've tried to do. And one of the things that I found in the UT Garden is that every part of the garden seems to know intuitively what it's supposed to be doing. The squirrels know, the slugs know, the sunflowers know, the birds know. Uh, There's no conductor. They just all know. And they all do it rather well. And it results in this beautiful symphony of color and music. And what I'm learning, I think, from that is that when we do what God created us to do, when we are what God created us to be, it results in this wonderful symphony of of, of beautiful music and and art. But sometimes, um, a squirrel will go rogue, and there's this road called Nayland that goes right by the uh, uh, garden. And... um, that usually doesn't end well for the squirrel <laughs> when the squirrel decides to leave the ecosystem of the garden and be what it's not supposed to be. Squirrels are not supposed to be uh, nailing. And I think the, the, the ecosystem of the garden is like the kingdom of God. The squirrel, when, when he is rooted in the soil of that ecosystem, flourishes and always knows what he's supposed to be doing. In a similar way, as a Christian, if you are rooted in the soil of the kingdom of God, if you understand, if you're in the word of God, if you're in the community of God's people, if you're you're in touch with God's spirit, you just become who you are. And things don't end in roadkill. So who are we? Well, we're salt. That's who we are. Uh, the people of the Promised Land knew their salt. The Dead Sea is sometime, sometimes called the Salt Sea. And uh, when I was in Jerusalem, uh, that was the, 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 the day trip that everybody wanted to take because when you float in the, in the Dead Sea, you, you just sort of bounce on the top. It's so salty. It's not like our oceans. And a couple times a year, the Dead Sea floods. And then when it evaporates, the salt is left. And there's actually a 10-mile uh, hill that is nothing but rock salt. And so uh, the people of Israel had plenty of salt. And uh, from the very first days, they used it to flavor their food, to preserve it. Obviously, before they had refrigeration, they used it to, uh, to preserve meat and fish, to keep it from decaying. Gradually, salt took on a larger meaning for Israel. Uh, God required that all sacrifices have salt. That was something I, I didn't know. Uh, You had to put some salt in every sacrifice that you offered. God's covenants with his people were usually confirmed with a meal. Salt was present. And so after a while, because salt was a preservative, uh, Israel developed something called the covenant of salt. And at one point, somebody was challenging King David, and the author says, no, you can't challenge King David because God has a covenant of salt with him. And we don't know exactly, we weren't there, we didn't know exactly what that meant, but to the reader it meant, whoa, okay, if you got a covenant of salt, he's special. Salt had this idea of permanence, of, of enduring, it was thought to have healing properties too. Uh, Elisha, the prophet, cured a poison river by putting salt in it. So when, when the disciples hear Jesus say, you're the salt of the world, what they're hearing is, you are the ones who purify the world. You are the ones who preserve the world from decay. You're the ones who heal the world by, by being who you are. Now, something that you can't see in the English, but it's, it's clear in the Greek, is the, the you, you are the, the salt of the earth, is in what's called an emphatic position. It's, uh, in, in the Greek, there's ways you can kind of boldface a word, and that's what What happens here? You, you, yes, you, I'm not talking to someone else, uh, Philip. I'm talking to you is kind of the idea. So you kind of get the idea that the 12 disciples are are looking around as Jesus is saying, you know, you're the ones that are going to go out and and transform the world. You 12 and the disciples are, you know, where are the, the smart people? Well, where are the trained people? Jesus says, no, you. I thought of a poem that I read today. Not even Jesus found the ready. Jesus called Nathanael. Nathanael lacked openness. Nathanael wasn't ready. Jesus called Philip. Philip lacked simplicity. Philip wasn't ready. Jesus called Simon the Zealot. Simon lacked nonviolence. Simon wasn't ready. Jesus called Andrew. Andrew lacked a sense of risk. Andrew wasn't ready. Jesus called Thomas. Thomas lacked vision. Thomas wasn't ready. Jesus called Judas. Judas lacked spiritual maturity. Judas really wasn't ready. Jesus called Matthew. Matthew lacked a sense of social sin. Matthew wasn't ready. Jesus called Thaddeus. Thaddeus lacked commitment. Thaddeus wasn't ready. Jesus called James the lesser. James lacked awareness. James wasn't ready. Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. James and John lacked a sense of servanthood. They weren't ready. Jesus called Peter the rock. Peter lacked courage. Peter wasn't ready. The point you see is that Jesus doesn't call the ready. Jesus calls the willing. You. 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 You're the salt of the world. So I think what Jesus is saying is this. He's just described the the saltiness of the disciple in the Beatitudes. Uh, The the man or the woman who has decided to allow Christ to shape their lives. And and he's saying a salty disciple, uh, it it, it looks like this. They're they're poor in spirit. They're entirely dependent on God. They know God's gentle comfort in, in, in their grief. They They're meek, they show strength under control, they're they're starved to do God's will, They're, they're merciful, they have received great kindness and give great kindness, they're pure in heart, they live out of the center of Christ, they're peacemakers, they're not always looking to win, but for reconciliation, they find joy amidst persecution, that's what it means to be salty. And so when we live in the world that way, we penetrate the world with Christ's presence. We bring purity, we preserve, we heal, not because we have a program to do it, not because if it's a strategy, not because we put it on our to-do list. it's just who you are. And it just happens. A friend sent me a story this week that I think illustrates this. You might have heard it um, for the fire uh, this is a, a newspaper clubbing for the firefighters and EMTs of Station Four in Baytown, Texas. It was another normal assignment, rushing to a 9-11 call to help save someone's life. But to the family and neighbors of John McCormick, it was beyond normal. It helped restore a bit of their faith in humanity. McCormick, 65, had a history of heart problems, quadruple bypass more than a decade ago, and other lingering health issues. Tuesday afternoon, he suffered a heart attack while mowing the yard of his Baytown home. He went inside his house and collapsed where his family called for help. Engine 4, Medic 4, and Medic 2 responded. EMTs performed CPR and got a pulse again. And per standard operating procedure, the crew of Engine 4 followed the ambulance to the hospital. But when they left the hospital to drive back to Station 4, engine driver Luke Bednerick had an idea. Hey, he said, why don't we go back to the McCormick home and finish mowing his yard? We're all fighting over who can push the mower first, said Station 4 Lieutenant J.D. Giles. I just happened to get off the truck first and grab the lawnmower first. We were all fighting. They took turns beyond the lawnmower. They finished the backyard, too. They locked the garage, put the padlock key in the mailbox, and they left a handwritten note to Patsy McCormick that said, We felt bad your husband didn't get to finish the yard, so we did. And they didn't think it was a big deal. No, not at all. Just something to help someone out, said Giles. But it was a letter and a gesture that made a daughter weep. It just showed me that there's still compassion in the world, said McCormick's daughter, that people still do random acts of kindness every day for people they don't know. (laughs) I think that's how it happens. Just as you're going, in your life, you're being salt. It just happens. I I had a conversation with one of our young members today. today, uh, They weren't young yesterday. They're young today. No, one of our younger members I had a conversation with earlier this week. She had trained for years to get, get a, a wonderful job in the healthcare industry. She graduated, she got the job, she started the job. It, she's working 50 hours a week. It's, it's a hard but a fulfilling job. And one of the things she's struggling with is she, she came to me and she said, I don't know what I should be doing for my ministry. And she said, When I was in college, I was involved in this neighborhood and I was involved with this youth group. And I feel so guilty now because I'm so tired and I don't know what to do for my ministry. And I said, You are a ministry. Your work is your ministry. The neighborhood you moved into, she moved into Mechanicsville, being there is a ministry. You don't have to do a ministry. Be salt. Be salt from this church planning book. The good news is that beneath the radar of most large church planning organizations and outside the purview of the hundred largest churches in America, uh, hundreds of new churches are springing up in North America that look very different from the church plants of the past. They begin small and relationally. They live life among their neighborhoods. They view the incarnation as the way God works, so they go be present with people not just offer services to people. Inspired by an enlarged view of God's triune work in the world, they seek to discern God at work preveniently where they are living. So, the the video that we saw during the offering is, is, is so poignant. If that is who we are, if we are the Beatitudes, if Christ is the Beatitudes, Christ is in us, we are in Christ, we abide in Christ, and that's who we become, that's... All you have to do is be who you are and make sure that you're rooted in the soil of the spiritual disciplines so that who you are is emerging. Now, A common question at many seasons of our lives is, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, I feel underemployed. I feel underused. I wonder if if my life is meaningful and has purpose. Should I be doing more? I feel restless. Others seem to be more strategic in their lives than I am. Uh, What should I do? I think Jesus would say, be salty wherever you are. Just be salty right now. Where you're going tomorrow morning, yes, uh, maybe it's not where you'd like to be going, but that's where you're going. Be salty right there. And that's how the kingdom comes. I think he'd say, when you get up tomorrow morning, you go to a job you don't like, a grad program you don't like, a, a teacher you don't like, a student you don't like, a kid you don't like, a wife you don't like. A body you don't like. I think he'd say, hey, be salt. Be poor in spirit right where you are. Be desperately dependent on God right where you are. Mourn where you are. If your heart is breaking, let it break. Let God comfort you. Be meek right where you are. Show strength under control right there. Starve to do God's will right where you are. Show mercy right where you are. Have a pure heart right where you are. Be a peacemaker right where you are. You're the salt of the earth. Be who you are. And here's the funny thing about life planning and discernment and vocation and jobs and all that stuff is is that I really believe this, is if you are who you are, you will get where you're supposed to be. It just happens. If you are faithful being salt where you are, God will open the doors and you will wind up where you're supposed to be. Now, after reminding the disciples who they are, Jesus gives them a warning. And I thought we ought to spend a little time on this tonight. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, first, for the chemists out there who know that true salt cannot lose its salinity, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the salt he's referring to comes from around the Dead Sea. It was a mixture of minerals and salt. And what would happen would be that uh, the salt would get washed away and all that would be left would be the mineral and it would lose its effectiveness. So, na-na-na-na-na. There's not, that's the answer to that. All right. And, and, and Jesus says, Jesus, boy. Jesus says, Don't lose your saltiness, because then you're not good for anything. There's a couple things going on in the background here. The rabbis used to use salt as an image of wisdom. And in the Greek, there's an odd translation. What the Greek really says literally is um, that when when you lose your salt, you become foolish. And, And so the idea seems to be that a foolish disciple has no influence on the world. So here's the question. Are you still salty? I mean, go back. If you're my age group, go back a ways. If you're younger, go back a couple years ago. Are Are you as salty as you were? You're losing your... Your saltiness? You ever been with a good cook, and and they'll taste something, and they'll say, ah, needs more salt. And what they mean is, what they're cooking is bland, it's boring, it's non-distinctive. Have you become bland and boring and non-distinctive? Would the people around you think, it needs more salt? You know, I think my greatest fear in aging, or probably one of my top 100, would be um, losing saltiness. Uh, Sandy and I, in the evenings, most evenings, are reading through a book by uh, Ronald Rollheiser called Sacred Fire. And uh, he says there's three phases in discipleship. He says... The first phase is the struggle to get my life together. He says that's the first thing a disciple figures out in life. Who am I? Where do I find meaning? Who will love me? Where am I going? How do I find love in a world full of identity and false promises? Then he says the second phase in the disciple's life is the struggle to give my life away. You know, Once I I sort of resolve most of those first issues, the next big stage is how, how do I give my life away to others? He says, mature discipleship begins when we begin living more for ourselves than others. And he says the third major stage of discipleship is the struggle to give our deaths away. How do we leave the planet in such a way that our death is our final and greatest gift to the world? And and, and obviously uh, Sandy and I are, are focusing on the, on the middle section. and uh, he, he says this about the second phase. He says, when you get there, now we are mature, but the pulse of life in us has been sufficiently dulled and depressed to leave ample room for our neuroses. <clears throat> let, me, let me read that one uh, again. Now we are mature, but the pulse of life in us has been sufficiently dulled and depressed to leave ample room for our neuroses. Then he quotes Thoreau, the youth gets together his materials to build a bridge to the moon or perchance a palace or temple on the earth, and at length the middle-aged man concludes to build a woodshed with them. So you can become foolish in any age. Um, What would cause you to lose your saltiness? What flattens you out? What erodes your distinctiveness? Uh, is it is it cynicism? Is it a sense of being abandoned and betrayed? Is it isolation and loneliness? Is it withdrawal? Is it bitterness? Is it gluttony? Is it jealousy? Is it over consuming? Is it passivity? Is it busyness? Is it lust? It would be a good conversation to have with your people this week. Where you might say, hey, you know, this is the one thing that I'm most vulnerable to. This is the one thing the enemy could do to flatten me out. Would you call me on it? And I think that takes us back to our original question. What kind of church flourishes in a culture that's becoming cool to Christianity? I think it's a salty one. And maybe the best gift we could give to one another in community is, is to call out our saltiness. And maybe even to say to our close people, not to everyone, and to say it with love and to say it With gentleness and a smile, but maybe sometimes to say, You are becoming boring. Is that what you want? Let's pray.